Our message comes to us this morning from 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of, for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Uh, please join me in a uh, brief moment of prayer. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father. Lord, as we uh, walk through this text and as we seek to understand the wisdom that comes from God, Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit would be our guide and our teacher and our instructor. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to rightly understand your word as it was intended to be understood by you, by your apostle Paul. And ultimately, we pray that, that through it all, we would be made to be like your son, just a little more. We pray that you would enable us to see more of your glory and of your magnificence and of your beauty, and that we would be awestruck and driven to worship you on a deeper level. So, Father, we pray now that you would clear our minds of all of the cares and worries of this world that would seek to distract us from focusing upon you and upon your word. We pray that you would rivet our attention um, upon you, Lord. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So I grew up in the uh, rough and crime ridden neighborhood of East Los Angeles. Uh, some of you know that, many of you do not. I was raised by a single mother, um, me and my two siblings in a, a very small, uh, run-down, two-bedroom apartment. And um, my mother, who at times had to work two jobs uh, just to provide for us as we were growing up, um, which means that I was home uh, alone a lot. I was what many would call a latchkey kid in the sense that I uh, would uh, get ready for school uh, pretty much on my own and get out the door and go to school as my, my mother would have to rise early to catch the bus and to take several buses to her job. 
and then uh, often would come home uh, to an empty apartment and let myself in, and then my sister would come home, and uh, my mom often would not get home until after dinner, and my sister and I would make dinner and kind of uh, care for ourselves until uh, mom would, uh, would be able to come home. As you can imagine, being home alone a lot, uh, as the old adage goes, the uh, idle hands of the devil's playground, I got into a lot of trouble um, growing up in a place like East Los Angeles. Got involved in a lot of illegal activities. I won't go into details with that. Uh, but I will say, to give you some insight, uh, I remember a close high school friend of mine uh, dying of a drug overdose when I was only 13 years old. During my high school years, I lived in no less than eight different homes, uh, mostly because people either did not want me or simply could not tolerate me. And so I would uh, outstay my welcome quite, quite quickly and would end up having to move on someplace else. As you can imagine, goes without saying, probably, that I was on my way to either prison or an early grave because of the mess that I was in and the kind of lifestyle that I was living. Also, as you can imagine, I, I wasn't looking for God. I was not a God seeker. If anything, I was always just simply looking for the next fix or the next high or whatever the case may be. But then, God got a hold of me. God found me when I wasn't looking for God. He changed my life and opened up my eyes to the glory of Christ and enabled me to understand the depths of my depravity. And I went on to become the first person in my immediate family among my siblings, my mom and dad, uh, of all things, to graduate from high school. The first in my family. Went on to become the first in my extended family, as far as I know, of all of my cousins and aunts and uncles to graduate from college and then to go on to a graduate program. Now, I say all of this not to tout my own achievements or to brag, because I certainly have absolutely nothing to brag about in and of myself. I have said it on many times that I am simply a tool of God in more ways than one. God has chosen simply to save me, to redeem me, and to use me for his glory. But I say all of this as a testimony to the transforming power of the gospel. Because the gospel truly does have the power to transform lives and to mend broken relationships. Not to say, I don't want to be misunderstood, not to say that everyone who receives Christ, who embraces the gospel, will go on to graduate from college or go into a graduate degree program. But it is to say that when God takes a hold of a person's life, that person immediately begins to think biblically. God's word immediately begins to shape and to inform 
every decision that that person makes regarding career and marriage and parenting and work and every area of life and money management. People's lives turn out different, not simply because our souls have been regenerated, but because our souls have been regenerated by the saving, transforming power of the Holy Spirit, our minds are recalibrated. We are given a different way of thinking, an entirely new world view. Those things that we once valued in life, we no longer value, and those things that we saw as insignificant, we now pursue, namely Christ. Knowing Christ, desiring to be like Christ. I believe that it goes without saying that if it were not for the saving grace and mercy of God, my life would be radically different than it is today and not for the better. Most of you would not know me if it were not for God. All of you would not want to know me if it were not for the saving grace of God. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand. You see, because since chapter 1, verse 18, if you've been with us through 1 Corinthians, Paul has been bashing on wisdom, hasn't he? The wisdom of this world, it's meaningless, it's pointless, it won't do you any good. Right, he says in verse 19 of chapter 1, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. He's going to destroy the wisdom of the wise. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Rhetorical question. Yes, God has made foolish the wisdom of this world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. The world cannot know God through all of its analytical study of religion or ethics. By its own means, by its own wisdom, by its own logic, the world cannot achieve a knowledge of God. For since the wisdom, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greek, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. He has been beating up on the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that the church in Corinth is leaning on. So now when we get to verse 6, Paul feels the necessity to qualify his words. You see, because Paul is not opposed to wisdom in and of itself. He is simply opposed to the wisdom of the world. 
He doesn't think all wisdom is bad, just worldly wisdom is bad. And that's biblical, right? Read the Proverbs. The first four or five chapters are all about encouraging the reader to seek wisdom, pursue it. But of course, Proverbs will define wisdom as the fear of God. And understanding is to turn from evil. And so Paul wants the church in Corinth to understand that he's not opposed to wisdom. It's sort of like philosophy. I took philosophy classes in college. I enjoyed it, reading Plato's Republic. Philosophy is not bad, but there are bad philosophies. Psychology is not bad, believe it or not, but there are bad psychologies. Science, as you know, is not bad, but there is bad science. So also Paul wants them to understand that wisdom is not bad. It is just the wisdom of the world, the wisdom that the world offers. And so he says in verse 6, yet among the mature, right? So you see it with the way he begins this sentence. He's been bashing wisdom And then he gets to verse 6, and he says, yet, hold on, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. We also impart wisdom. We espouse wisdom, although it is not the wisdom of this age, or the wisdom of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. Now, first of all, what does he mean when he says, among the mature? There is some debate as to what Paul means by that, but most agree that it is likely a subtle rebuke of the Corinthian church. In other words, among those who are mature enough to listen, church in Corinth, to hear God's word, to hear what it says, and to live it out, we impart wisdom. If you're mature enough to listen to what I am saying, you will receive wisdom. But they're not. In fact, Paul very clearly will say that very shortly when we get to chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And that makes sense. I had just presented you with the gospel You weren't ready for milk, for solid food. I gave you milk. I gave you basic Christianity 101. And even now, you are not yet ready. You're still not ready. Three years later, they're still not ready for me. For you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So Paul is saying, look, if you are mature enough to embrace and to accept, because spiritual maturity goes hand in hand with humility. The spiritually mature person is one who is willing to listen to correction to acknowledge that, okay, I'm wrong in this, 
I will turn from my error and embrace biblical truth. It is the prideful, immature person who simply will not admit to being wrong about anything. This was the church in Corinth. And it doesn't get any better because when you read 2 Corinthians, Paul comes under attack by the church in Corinth. Now they're questioning his apostolic ministry. And Paul has to defend his apostleship. And then we know from church history, even 30 years after Paul's death, one of the early church fathers wrote a letter to the church in Corinth continuing to correct them and to rebuke them because of their pride. They were a prideful bunch. So this is what Paul is dealing with. And so he says to them, nonetheless, we, the apostles, do impart wisdom. We impart wisdom. It's not just the sophists. It's not just the professional rhetoricians who impart wisdom. But we also, the apostles, impart wisdom to those who are mature enough to receive it, who are humble enough to receive it. But Paul's wisdom, that is the apostles' wisdom, he says, is not of this age. It's not of this world or the rulers of this age, that is the rulers of this world, who are doomed to pass away. It's interesting that the, uh, the words doomed to pass away, those four words are actually one Greek word in the underlying Greek, and it is the same word in Chapter 1, verse 28, to bring to nothing. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. In other words, what Paul is saying is that the wisdom of this world and the rulers of this world who think that they are so wise, they think they've got it all figured out, they've solved all of life's major problems, And yet, society keeps getting worse. The moral fabric of not just the United States, but of this world continues to unravel at an alarming pace. He says, the wisdom of this world and all of the rulers of this world who think they are so wise and all-knowing will someday be brought to nothing. Someday they will be shown to be nothing. Their wisdom will be shown to be nothing, to be insignificant. And what day will that be? Clearly the day of judgment, right? There's going to come a day when every person on the face of the planet who has ever lived throughout all of redemptive history will have to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And at that moment, most, if not all, I would venture to say, all of the unbelieving world will have one reaction. You're real? Are you serious? We had so much science, so much irrefutable proven science to show that everything came from a big explosion and evolved out of slime. 
We had so much science that was clear and irrefutable to show that there are many genders. How is it that you're real and we were wrong? Because the wisdom of this world is foolish. And God will someday show it to be nothing, insignificant. And yet we live in a world of people who think they are so wise and all-knowing, and nothing could be further from the truth. But, Paul says in verse 7, But we, the wisdom of this world will be shown to be nothing, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What is this secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages began? And who is it a secret to? Or who is it hidden from? Clearly, Paul is talking about the gospel. He's talking about redemptive history. He's talking about the entire plan of redemption. Everything God has been doing since before the creation of the world. Look at Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. My friends, listen. God's plan of salvation, God's plan of salvation, his plan of redemption is not the result of the fall. Rather, the fall, and in fact, all of creation is the result of God's plan for redemption. First, God has a plan And then he implements that plan. And he implements that plan beginning with Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Everything we read in the Bible beginning with Genesis 1, 1 is the result of God's plan of redemption. Because God had already foreordained who he would save before the foundation of the world. All of world history has been planned by God. Every event in the history of mankind, both large and small, has been foreordained and orchestrated by the sovereign hand of God. Matthew 10, 29. Listen to the words of Christ. Jesus says this, 
Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Meaning you go and you buy from the marketplace two sparrows that you're going to use maybe as an offering. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father's will. Not a single bird throughout the entire planet will fall to the ground and die apart from the sovereign will of God. There are no maverick molecules in the universe. We impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages began. But here's what's really amazing. Which God decreed before the ages, before the ages, why? For our glory. For our glory. What does that mean? I mean, I thought God did everything for his own glory. What does it mean that he laid out in the mind of God before Genesis 1-1 the plan of redemption for our glory? Well, first of all, you need to understand that for Paul, glory does not always mean to praise or to exalt. We tend to think that because that is how we use it in Christian lingo most often, right? We exist for the glory of God. We worship and exalt the glory of God. We should live for the glory of Christ and for his glory, for his praise, and for his honor. Sometimes in Pauline theology, the word glory carries an eschatological meaning. So there's your, there's your five-cent word for the day, eschatological. Kids, write that down. You can impress your friends at school. It comes from the, the word eschatology, which comes from the Greek words eschatos, which means end times or end things or last things, and ology, the study of. So eschatology is the study of last things. And so with Paul, sometimes the word glory has eschatological Meaning, meaning it refers to the end times, to the last things. I'll give you two scripture references. I know you're wondering, is he making this stuff up? Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Paul says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Future glory. Paul says, I am convinced that the sufferings of this world, no matter how difficult they may be, are nothing in comparison to the glory that is to be revealed when we enter into paradise, heaven, the new earth. So there's an eschatological Meaning there in glory. We see it also in verse 30 of that same chapter, the ordo salutis, or the order of salvation. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Not that he exalts us, but that we will enter into glory 
with Christ. So there is an eschatological meaning, and I think that is part of what Paul means there, that God decreed all of redemptive history from eternity past for our glory, that someday we may enter into that glory and enjoy it with Christ. But so also with Christ, sometimes the word glory has a soteriological meaning. There's your second five-cent word. Soteriology comes from two Greek words again, soterios, which means salvation, and ology, which is the study of. So when we talk about soteriology, we're talking about the study of salvation. And there are times when Christ will use the word glory, and it carries a soteriological meaning. In other words, there is a a meaning that has to do with salvation. John chapter 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer. Verses 22 and 23. But the context is that he is praying for all future believers. It's one of my, uh, actually it is my favorite point in Jesus' high priestly prayer because he's praying for me. He's praying for all of you if you're a believer. And because he's God, I just like to imagine that he is picturing all of our faces in the flash of a moment as he prays for us. Because he says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, not just for my disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for all future believers. And what does he pray in verses 22 and 23? He says, Father, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Well, how's that? How does Jesus give us his glory? The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Here's how. That they may be one, even as we are one that they may be united, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So Jesus is praying that we would experience his glory. And what is that glory? That all believers would be united in one body, one heart, united in mind, living in harmony and at peace with one another, and that we would know and the world would know that God the Father loves us just as much as he loves his only begotten Son. We All of this would be by means of our union with Christ. So there is that soteriological meaning for the word glory. So the question is, does Paul mean an eschatological meaning or a soteriological? Probably both. They're two sides of the same coin. So Paul thus is saying in 1 Corinthians 2.7 that everything God decreed was, yes, first and foremost, for his glory. That is true. The primary reason God does anything is for his own glory, but also 
Everything that God decreed from eternity past was for our glory. That is for our benefit, for our blessing, for our joy and happiness and contentment. Then he points out in verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They simply didn't get it. They didn't understand it. Because if they did, they wouldn't have crucified Christ. Right? Yes, he needed to be crucified. He had to be crucified. But nonetheless, the disciples didn't crucify him because they knew who he was. He's the son of God. Had the rulers of this world understood who Jesus was, they would have worshipped him. But instead, they crucified him. Why? Because of the hardness of their heart, because of their spiritual blindness, because they followed the wisdom of this world, they rejected Christ, who is the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of this world says, kings don't come from Nazareth. That doesn't make sense. They come from Jerusalem, or at least Bethlehem, which Christ did, but none of them knew it. The wisdom of this world said messiahs aren't conceived out of wedlock. So you can't be the messiah. The wisdom of this world said the son of God cannot be the son of a carpenter. Because that simply does not make sense. The world is still dealing with that. There is such a dangerous, slippery slope that churches often find themselves on because they give in to the wisdom of this world. Even today, there are churches with steeples and a cross, and they use Bibles, and they actually read from it, and they sing hymns, who continue to defend abortion. Because the wisdom of the world says, woman's right. There are churches today who defend homosexuality and gay marriage and are ordaining homosexual ministers because the wisdom of the world says if these two people are in love with each other and they're happy with one another, then what's the problem? Don't we want people to be happy? Doesn't God want people to be happy? What is the problem? Well, this is the problem, right? God's word is the problem. Well... We don't want to slavishly hold to this book that was written 2,000 years ago or more, and we're not sure it's entirely reliable. There's errors that are found in it. Well, if you can't trust the Bible, then how do you trust the God who gave us the Bible as a self-revelation of himself? If God is incapable or unwilling to preserve his own self-revelation of himself, then how can he be trusted to keep any of his promises? 
but to bring us into eternal life. You question Scripture, and you've got bigger problems. It's the wisdom of the world that churches are buying into. But, Paul says, in contrast to those who rejected Christ, verse 9, he says, As it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Now, it's difficult to know what Paul is citing exactly at this point. It seems to be a loose quote from Isaiah 64.4, but if you go back and read Isaiah 64.4, it's not word for word. And he's not citing the Septuagint either. He's not quoting that word for word. So it seems to be a loose quote of Isaiah 64.4, we think, with maybe uh, mixing in a little bit of Psalm 31.20, maybe Isaiah 52.15, maybe Isaiah 65.17. But this should not cause us to question the trustworthiness of Paul, because that is the temptation. You know, look, Paul can't even quote the Old Testament. I mean, if he's an apostle, if he speaks authoritatively on behalf of Christ, shouldn't he be able to quote the Old Testament word for word? Why can't Paul get it right? If he can't get it right, why should we trust anything else that Paul says? Here's the thing you have to keep in mind. First of all, with Paul or any of the apostles for that matter, it is important to notice not only what they say, the words that they use, but it's important to notice the words that they don't use. That can be just as telling as the words that they use as well. For example, Paul does not say as the prophet Isaiah has written. He doesn't say that. He simply says, as it is written. Thus, this is a loose quote, I think, from Isaiah 64, 4, which still makes it accurate and valid, even if it's not word for word. Because we do that all the time. I'll give you an example. How many of you have heard it said, or maybe even said yourself, you know, the Bible says that God works all things for our good and for his glory, right? Wrong. The Bible doesn't say that. It doesn't actually say that word for word. That's not a direct quote. What the Bible actually says is, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Close quote. That's what it says. But we know that when someone says, you know, the Bible says God works all things for our good and for his glory, we know that that is a loose yet accurate quote of Romans 8.28. It's an interpretive quote, but nonetheless, it is an accurate quote understanding of that verse. I think that's what Paul is doing here in Isaiah, by citing, I think, Isaiah 64, 4. But the point, however, the point, however, is this, that for those who have placed faith in Christ, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who Love him. Now, most often this verse is cited as a reference to heaven, right? You've probably heard that before. This is a verse that gets pulled out whenever uh, someone passes away who's a believer, or maybe someone has lost a recent loved one, 
as a means of encouragement. You know, I know this is tough, but just keep in mind that no eye has seen nor ear has heard nor heart imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And so there, there is this, this understanding that this is pointing us toward the future, toward heaven when we get there. While it's certainly true that there is a future aspect to this, Paul intends us to understand this in the here and now. Look at verse 10. These things, what things? Verse 9. These things God has revealed, has, not will, these things God has, present tense, revealed to us in the here and now through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In other words, those who place faith in Christ, those who embrace the gospel, those who embrace Christ as the wisdom from God, as wisdom personified, right? Because that's what we were told back in chapter 1, verse uh, 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. The wisdom that we read about in the Proverbs, the wisdom that we are to pursue with every fiber of our being is Christ himself. Christ is God's wisdom personified. And thus, Paul's point is that those who place faith in Christ, those who embrace the gospel, those who embrace Christ as the wisdom from God will experience future glory in the here and now, will experience right now, right here in this life, joy, happiness, contentment, and satisfaction regardless of how your life turns out. Your life will be better if you put faith in Christ. I know some of you are thinking, oh, great, now he's embraced the prosperity gospel. There he goes. Time to remove him as an elder. Here's what I mean by that, is that even Dietrich Bonhoeffer would agree with that. Even Dietrich Bonhoeffer would have said, while he is sitting in a German prison awaiting his execution, my life is far better today than it ever would have been without Christ. For those who embrace Christ as the wisdom from God, we will experience future glory in the here and now, the glory that Christ prayed for, that he desires for us to experience joy, happiness, contentment, satisfaction, unlike any human being can ever experience, unlike the world can ever possibly understand. But this only comes to those who embrace Christ as the wisdom from God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace and mercy and love. 
We thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be the wisdom from God that we so desperately needed. And we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you opened our eyes so that we might see Christ for who he truly is. And Lord, we pray that you would enable us, that you would cause us to pursue the wisdom that Proverbs speaks of, that we would pursue with all of our strength the wisdom from God, who is Christ himself, that we would strive to be like him, to worship him, and to glorify him in all that we do and say. And Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name.